Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Put fit first with Third Love. Third Love uses real women's measurements to create bras that fit better. Available in sizes AA through G, as well as their exclusive half cup sizes. Try one of Third Love's 24 7 bras free for 30 days. If it's not your favorite, return or exchange it for free. Go to thirdlove.com slash books now and try Third Love free for 30 days. That's thirdlove.com slash books. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 115, and today we are talking about books released on July 11th, 2017, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with my fellow podcast, Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. Hi. It is a big day today. Oh my goodness. I think because last Tuesday was a holiday, so Mm. today is the biggest new release day of July. Having giant new release days in the middle of the summer still feels new to me. Like only in the last couple of years has this really been happening. Like a while right? from now we're going to be like having new release days in December like is going to be weird. Like pretty soon it's going to be <laughs> every single week. Yeah, I mean that's one thing that I think the ebook market has flattened out and the distance between hardcover and paperback releases has definitely shortened, but a bunch of variables, and I'm sure some of them are things that I don't even know about, seem to have moved things from like, it used to be, like when I started in books almost a decade ago now, um, when I started, it was like October was really big, and then April slash May was kind of big as people were going into summer reading. And then like the only new things that were coming out in June, July, August were typical like summery, vacation-y, fluffier kinds of books. And now there's really substantial stuff coming out almost all the time. Like August is still a little bit of a ghost town. And that like last part of summer when everyone's on their last vacation is still a little quieter. But it's just like every, I was thinking, oh, it's July 11th. There won't be very many things. And then I looked at my list of tags for the day and it was like, oh, wait, never mind. Yeah. The book gods are smiling on us. They are. We have a ton of good things today. Yes. Why don't you kick you kick us off? Well, so there's so many books out today, and I've read a substantial number of them. So I had all my reading done, and I got my notes done early. Like, I'm not Ooh, usually hey. this prepared. So something's going to happen, like my lips are going to fall off while I'm talking <laughs> or something. I'm just waiting for it, because <laughs> whenever I'm this prepared, it always goes horribly wrong. So let's find out what's going to happen, shall we? <laughs> My first. <laughs> uh, sometimes we pants it and things go fine, and sometimes we're both prepared and who, the yeah. wheels come off. Who knows? Maybe yeah. maybe this will be the rare show where everything's just perfect. All right. Well, let's start with my first pick. It is a big one, big summer thriller. It's Final Girls by Riley Sager. It's kind of like if Jillian Flynn wrote an episode of American Horror Story. It's a thriller slash horror novel. 
It's about a woman named Quincy Carpenter. She is a survivor of the Pine Cottage Massacre. It's this horror movie type killing that took place when she was in college. And she's the only survivor. There were five other people in this cottage with her. She's the only one who got out. And there's also two other women. One is named Lisa. And she was the last survivor of the slaughter in a sorority house. And there's another woman named Sam who was a victim of the sack man who survived. She was the only survivor of that. And so the media has named these women the final girls. Like, over the years, they've given them this term and they talk about them. The girls have all never met, but, you know, they're just very famous just for being the survivors. So now it's ten years later. Quincy has a lovely apartment in New York City. She has a great boyfriend. She has a successful food blog. She does not remember what happened in the Pine Cottage massacre. She doesn't remember what happened. Um, she's blocked it out. She's like doesn't go out of her house much. She doesn't interact with a lot of people. But she's very happy like doing this food blog. And then she gets the news that Lisa, one of the other final girls, has committed suicide. And while she's like trying to deal with this, like get her mind around it, the other girl, Sam, shows up at her door. And now, like I said, they've never met before. And Sam tells her, you know, I heard about Lisa and I thought that, you know, I should reach out to you because we're like the final girls and we should get to know each other and sort of support each other through this. But her boyfriend is like, this woman is a stranger and she looks a little sketchy and you want to let her into your life and let her into our house. I don't know if this is a good idea. And so she turns for advice from Coop, who is sort of this father figure in Quincy's life. He's actually the police officer who was first on the scene and sort of rescued her at Pine Cottage. So she's always relied on him and looked up to him and been very close to him because of what they experienced. Um, but she also, she feels bad for Sam. Like, Sam is lost. She's gone through a traumatic thing just like her. She doesn't know what to do. So she decides that she and Sam are going to be friends, and she lets Sam come and stay in her apartment. But as the days go on, it looks more and more like Sam may not be who she says she is. And she also brings out this wild side in Quincy that Quincy is not used to, and it's forcing her to remember the night in Pine Cottage and the truth about what actually happened. So it's like horror movie, mystery, thriller, tons of fun. I just, it's just tons of fun. Um, Riley Sager is actually a pseudonym. It says right in the back that Riley Sager is a pseudonym for an author who has already published books, who is a graphic designer living in New Jersey and is originally from Pennsylvania. So I've been hmm. trying to figure out who it is because... <laughs> Sluice it out. Like, I, I've been trying so hard, I cannot figure it out. But I really want it to be Chip Kid because he's a graphic designer who's from Pennsylvania, although he doesn't live in New Jersey now, but I can hope I would just die if it was Chip Kid. I love him. Anyway, so maybe someday we'll find out the answer to that mystery, too. But until then, Final Girls, Summer Thriller, it's by Riley Sager. Maybe someone who knows the author who goes by Riley Sager will, like get drunk at a party and divulge it, like what happened when we all found out that J.K. Rowling was, um, <laughs> what is J.K. Rowling's pseudonim? Robert uh, Gale Yes. Is that yes. It? Yeah. yeah, it was like someone who was a friend of her lawyer leaked it at a party, was like chit-chatting, and I remember when that happened. Yeah. Um, okay, my first one this week is nonfiction. It's 
true crime. It's totally, and it's like sociology also. It's totally fascinating. It's called American Fire by Monica Hess. And this is about a small town in Accomack County, Virginia, which is on Virginia's Eastern shore, which if you are, if you don't live in Richmond, like I do, and you're not familiar with Virginia geography, the Eastern shore is separated from the rest of the state. Um, it's kind of sticks out into the water and you have to drive basically like up through Maryland and Delaware, part of Delaware to get there. Um, so it's kind of a like a county that town that that time forgot. Uh, there's everything is old fashioned. There are people whose families have lived there for like six generations. So you know it's like oh that's a good family name. Um, everyone knows everybody else. Everybody is all up in everybody else's business, and it's a place where farming used to be like small family owned farms used to be the primary mode of making money of survival but they were replaced by large industrial farming operations. So like a lot of the residents work for the Purdue chicken farm and Purdue chicken factory, that kind of thing. In 2012, the volunteer fire department in one part of the county gets a call that an abandoned building is on fire. They go and put it out. And basically as soon as it's out, there's another call that another building is burning down. And like getting two calls in one night is not that unusual, but it looks like there's two uh, moments of arson happening. And that is a little bit unusual. The fires are similar to each other, but what's really unusual is that it keeps happening. Like night after night for several months, not every night, but many nights, abandoned buildings in Accomack County are getting set on fire and they cannot catch who's doing it. It's always abandoned buildings except in one instance. And over the course of a couple of months, there are 67 incidents of arson. The police departments have called in profilers to try to figure out who's doing it. They're analyzing the patterns of like where all the fires are located. They have noted that it's all abandoned buildings. So, you know, like it doesn't look like someone's taking revenge on a particular person. In one instance, they let all of the chickens out of someone's garage before they set the old garage on fire. Um, so there's like not a desire to do harm to someone. And the profiler starts thinking, this is somebody who's having a hard year, having a hard time, and they're lighting fires as a mode of release, basically. Um, that there's all this tension and stress, and when they light the fire, they feel a release, but they can't figure out who in town this profile fits. 67 fires, like for months and months, all the all the firefighters in the county are volunteers. All of those volunteer firefighters are just exhausted. Like they have day jobs, they have families, they're not getting any sleep because they're getting called out to all of these fires. It's just relentless. And everybody in town is going a little crazy. There are Facebook pages that pop up like with people, you know, putting on their tinfoil hats, trying to figure out who might be doing this. The police are asking all the questions they can think to ask, but it's not turning anything up. No one has seen anything that they think looks suspicious. Like there are no witnesses to any of these fires. The police have put up those um, hunting cameras that are motion activated to try to catch who's doing it. Like they've analyzed what other abandoned buildings around town are likely to be scenes of future fires. And they're hoping that they'll catch something, but like nothing works. They've got men in tents, like hiding out in the woods by some of the other abandoned buildings. It's like, it is bonkers, but it's all true. These are all things that they employed to try to catch the arsonists. And it comes out after 67 fires, they do catch a man named Charlie Smith and his girlfriend, Tanya Bundick. And Monica Hesse here has 
replayed and sort of assembled the story. So the book moves back and forth between chapters that tell the story in progressing order of the fires and what the police know. And then it's interspersed with chapters about Charlie and Tanya and their lives growing up in Accomack County and how people perceive of them as their neighbors. And then what happens after they get caught. It's like their love affair is tangled up in why they're setting these fires. There's a complicating secret element related to it. After they get caught, their stories are not the same. And so then there are a bunch of trials. It's it's just so compelling. It's wonderfully written. Like I I pardon the pun, like, but I burned through it. I read this in one sitting. And it's I mean it's fascinating, but the the like the story is super fascinating, super interesting, but Monica Hess really assembles it in a way that makes it that that brings it home of like how did this happen in this particular place in America at that particular time when the economy was in trouble? People were having a rough time. Charlie Smith was in particular having a really difficult time. Um, And she thinks about how it seemed like Accomack County was the only place that this could have happened. But really, there are these small towns all over the country where industry is changing, where the populations are getting older because the young people are moving out. And what's happening in these places um, that could be sites of things like this. So she loops in this sociology element. She interviewed a ton of people. She got to talk to Charlie Smith um, to write it as well. And it's just so fully realized as what happened, but also how and why and who are these people? Where else could we imagine this happening? It's a uniquely American story in those ways. And I just thought it was so, it's just so well done. Um, I don't read a ton of true crime. I didn't even really think of this as true crime until I was Googling to see how other people had classified it. But of course, it's a story about 67 arsons. So it is, but it just reads like a really fantastic documentary. I could just hear the voice narrating scene by scene. Um, I would watch a documentary about this. It's really excellent. There are just so many tiny details that make it a really terrific read about a really startling and kind of crazy time in the life of one small town. So it's American Fire by Monica Hess, and that's H-E-S-S-E. Well, all right. Man, I just rambled on about that. (laughs) You talked about it. It was so good. It was so good. I really enjoyed it. Speaking of good. Uh Oh, Our first sponsor is one of the most anticipated books of the summer, if not the year. It's out today. It is Goodbye Vitamin by Rachel Combe. It is out from Henry Holt. It is about a woman named Ruth. She is 30 years old. She quits her job, leaves town, and arrives at her parents' home to find that the situation is more complicated than she ever realized. Her dad has early-onset Alzheimer's, making him only erratically lucid, while her usually steady mom is lucidly erratic. It's an inescapably <laughs> moving debut from a wonderful new literary voice, saying that you can go home again. And it's totally in captivating glimpses and drawn from a deep well of insight, humor, and unexpected tenderness. So it's for early fans of Lauren Groff, Jamie Attenberg, Alexandra Kleeman, Miranda July... It's fantastic, and I was really glad that they were sponsored today because then I got to pick a different book to talk about. So we get to talk about this one and some other ones. This one's really good. Again, it's called Goodbye Vitamin by Rachel Combe. It's spelled K-H-O-N-G, and we thank Henry Holt for sponsoring. We will have a link to it in the show notes. 
Yes, we will. That was originally on my list for today. Yes. I figured. Right. What's up next? More books, more books. (laughs) My next pick is What We Lose by Zinzi Clemens. Fantastic debut. Just amazing. It's a really powerful look at family, loss, race, and belonging and not belonging. It's told in the sharp little vignettes, which make it so easy to read. You can ingest it in, you know, no time at all. It's about a woman named Tandy, and it goes back and forth in time between when she was young and now that she's in her 20s. She is the daughter of a black South African mother and a white American father. And at the beginning of the book, she actually discusses some of the stuff that Trevor Noah hits on in his memoir. She talks about how, like, when she visits South Africa... She's not referred to as black. She's referred to as colored. That's what they call people of mixed um, parents. And But when she's in America, she's called black. So she doesn't know, like, where she is. And her, her father is a professor, and her mother does really well, so they actually live in a well-to-do part of town. And so all the kids that she goes to school with at this, like, fancy school are all white, you know, and she's, like, there's this part where she's at a party in high school, and she mentions, like, I'm the only black person here. And, you know, someone's like, yeah, but you don't count. You know, like, she doesn't, like, know where she fits in and, you know, how to feel about these things. And she's very, very close to her mother. And then her mother is diagnosed with cancer. And it goes very quickly for her. Um, She drops out of college to care for her mother. And it goes on to talk about how the loss of her mother affects her. Like, how it changes her behavior and what she cares about and what she's interested in. And she becomes a little self-destructive and... You know, she doesn't, she's sort of, like, set afloat. She doesn't know what to do with herself. Um, And when she does figure out, you know, like, what she thinks she wants, she finds that she's unexpectedly pregnant. Um, It's just this really raw gut punch. I cried a lot. It's very sad. It's the, the the discussions with her mother are just, they're very sad. (laughs) And it's just so naked and honest that I spent the whole time, it's one of those books that I spent the whole time wondering, like, how much of this is true? Like, she had to have gone through this for her to be able to write like this. Like, is this actually, did the author actually experience this? It's just so fantastic. So, again, it's called What We Lose by Zinzi Clemens. And don't be surprised when Oprah picks it. Ooh. All right. Just throwing that down there. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see you. Let it be noted. Um, my next pick this week is really similar to that one it's the art of death writing the final story by edward dantica Um, she's a novelist primarily but this is part memoir part meditation and part literary criticism um, inspired by her experience seeing her mother through her death. Um, Her mother died of cancer and talked very openly with her about what the process was like. At one point, she decided to discontinue treatment when it was going to be too painful and her quality of life wouldn't be what she wanted it to be anymore. And so that's the first thing that the family wrestles with is one of her brothers really resists this. Um, And so they start talking about Uh, what it means to, the phrase that they use is to live dyingly or to die livingly. And Dantica being who she is, so well-read, brings in 
other stories about death. And she starts talking about how, you know, we don't have any firsthand accounts of death because you die and then you can't write stories. But we have all of these imagined stories about death. And then we have all of these uh, memoirs and essays about people as they were dying. And she pulls in just such a breadth of material. There's stuff from Tolstoy. There's stuff from Gabriel Garcia Marquez. There are quotes from Sula by Toni Morrison. It's just all over the map as she moves back and forth between the very particular moment of her mother's death and what it did to her own thinking and writing about death um, to the bigger picture of how writers across time have approached writing about death and telling those final stories and what the way that like what the ways that death shows up in fiction especially can tell us about what we imagine death to be. Um, it's really touching. It's not as much of a snot bomb as it sounds like your pick is, Lib. And I think it's because she moves back and forth between the personal and then the wider scale of let's talk about fiction for a little bit. But I found that the movement to be very fluid. Um, she does it really elegantly. And if you're, and, and it, this is not like literary criticism that prides itself on being literary criticism. It's just, you can sense that Dantica has been thinking and really like pouring over this idea of personal accounts of death, fictional assessments and explorations of death. And the way that she makes sense of things is to read about them. And so she's pulling in all of those pieces. Um, but she looks at people's individual deaths and big catastrophes, you know, kind of global events and kind of everything in between. It's really a very nicely done book. I remember when it came, when the galley came in the mail several months ago from Grey Wolf, um, I was like, do I really want to read a book about writing about death? But the answer is yes. Um, and Grey Wolf is, this is part of a series that Grey Wolf has done that's the art of something. So Dantica has the art of death, but there are a bunch of other great writers doing the art of other things contained within that big umbrella of literary criticism. But I think if you're interested in uh, if you any of sort of these end-of-life narratives, but also how that ties back to storytelling in general, um, this is a great read. It's just thoughtful and one of those issues that we don't like to think about because it's hard to think about, but we will all die and we will all know people who mm -hmm. die. Um, so, well, except for you because you're a unicorn. Yes. <laughs> you will live forever eating books. Uh, but this is uh, really gorgeous. It's a lovely tribute to her mother, but also a really impressive work of criticism. So that is The Art of Death, Writing the Final Story by Edwidge Dantica. Look at how we picked those two books. I know. We haven't had good, smooth segues in a while. Yeah, bumpy segues. So <laughs> for my next pick... Um, I have the brilliant Feel Bad Book of the Summer. Oh. It's Tropic of Kansas by Christopher Brown. It's an alternate history dystopia. Uh, it's like American War, but instead of there being a civil war, it's basically like the whole country is just screwed. So um, it makes it seem even more realistic somehow. Uh, mm -hmm. It's So basically it's scarier than Final Girls, really, because it's like possible. But the U.S. is just a mess. It's in the future. The U.S. is a mess. Um, farmland has failed after, you know, years and, de or I should say decades of, you know, poisoning the grounds and pesticides and all this stuff. The earth has stopped producing crops. Like, so now um, food is hard to come by. 25% of the country is unemployed. The whole center of the country has become this sort of DMZ 
um, where it's just called the Tropic of Kansas now. Um, the president is a madman with absolute power. He silences anyone who opposes him. He does away with term limits. He's been in power forever now. He's corrupt. He's dangerous. Um, they say that in, like, his third, like, he has an election, but, like, he gets elected every time. They say, like, even in, like, the third election, he didn't actually have a real opponent. It was, like, fake news. Like, they just put up a puppet for him to pretend to run against, but there was no way he wasn't going to get elected. Um, he's so awful that there's a rumor that, because the White House in his third term has been blown up. He has lost an arm. Um, they say that the vice president was the suicide bomber because he's so awful somebody had to stop him. Um, he has deputized militias to police the citizens, uh, which is terrible. People who are opposed to his views and are trying to fight against the government hope that the cops actually get to them before the militias do because these people are lawless and have no rules. Um, everything is bugged and everything is watched by cameras. The skies are filled with drones. The roads are full of robots. Um, people are fleeing to Canada, but Canada's like, uh-uh, don't come here. So they catch people and send them back, and then they get put in jail, and horrible things happen. Um, so the main characters of this book are a young man named Sig, who was the son of a rebel who was killed by police in a riot. And he's been fighting against the government and trying to... He works for, like, a, an underground organization. And then there's his foster sister, Tanya, who is a government investigator who is looking for him. Um, it's just... I'm not going to give away any more of the plot, but... It's brilliant, but like I said, not the feel-good book of the summer, but so, so smart and so amazing. You know, the people in this book are just like, how did we get here? We never expected this to happen, and it just really touches a nerve. It's just so smart and horrifying and amazing. Again, it's called Tropic of Kansas by Christopher Brown. All right. Well, something that will make you feel good yes. is our next sponsor. Mm -hmm. It is the new podcast called LeVar Burton Reads. A lot of us, including me, if you're listening to this show, you probably did as well, learned to love reading from watching LeVar Burton on Reading Rainbow. He won a Peabody and a dozen Emmys for the show. And now he has a new podcast that recreates that magic, but it's intended for us, for the grownups. It's called LeVar Burton reads. And in each episode, he picks one of his favorite short stories and reads it to us. Like, this is the most soothing thing ever. Um, in the first one, he reads the story Kin by Bruce McAllister. And you know, because you grew up with it, that nobody brings a story to life like LeVar Burton does. There's also music and original sound design. So every episode is a new adventure. And I think if you're listening to Book Riot podcasts and you like books and reading, which you do because you're here, you're going to enjoy LeVar Burton Reads. But you also don't have to take our word for it. You can subscribe to LeVar Burton Reads in Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It's just lovely. Like, you could just drive around listening to it. You could imagine that LeVar Burton is your best friend and you're taking a walk in the park. Um, we, I know some of the Book Riot insiders are using this as, like, bedtime stories, and I think that's wonderful as well. But just a really cool thing. I love that LeVar Burton is continuing the Reading Rainbow legacy and that there's something now for those of us who grew up with him and have that nostalgia. You can ring those nostalgia bells all day long with LeVar Burton Reads. So again, you can subscribe to that 
that in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and we'll have a link in the show notes. Big, big thanks to them. I would have died if you had told like 20-year-old me that someday a thing called a podcast would exist and that I would have one and that so would LeVar Burton and he would advertise on the one I host. It's like hearing from Santa. <laughs> It is. It's it's bonkers. Um, So that's a little bit of a pinch ourselves moment here too, but very cool. And it's a great new show. Thank you, Yusufani. I know. Leads me into my next pick this week, which is a feel-good, but also very meaty book about books and reading. It's called Reading with Patrick, A Teacher, a Student, and a Life-Changing Friendship by Michelle Kuo. Um, Michelle graduated from Harvard in 2004. She was a Teach for America volunteer, and she was sent by Teach for America to Helena, Arkansas, which is a small rural town in the Mississippi River Delta. Like a lot of the folks who do Teach for America, she's like bursting with idealism. She really believes that she's going to make a difference in the lives of the students that she encounters. Um, but she, you know, is a Harvard graduate. She's the child of Taiwanese immigrants. Um, she had her own upbringing that was very different from these kids in one of the poorest counties in the country, which is still today shaped by. Jim Crow, by the legacy of slavery, by all varieties of institutional racism and poverty. But she gets in there and she starts working and she really connects with this one student whose name is Patrick, uh, Patrick Browning. And in learning to read and to connect with literature, he starts to have a political awakening, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, He's 15 at the time. He's a middle schooler. And he really starts to blossom because of Michelle's teaching and the special attention that she gives him. They form this exciting, you know, student-teacher relationship all around the power of books and about the, and, you know, around the fact that books are political. Reading has always been political, and it has the power to change the way that we look at the world. Um, after she has a couple of years there, though, in Arkansas, her parents start pressuring her and. She's getting other opportunities and other offers, so she leaves and she goes to law school. Um, and then right before she's going to graduate from law school, she found she finds out that Patrick has been put in jail for murder. Um, and she is shocked and she feels like it was a mistake that she left so soon. She wants to go back and see him, so she does. She goes and... Uh, she goes back to Helena, Arkansas, and then for the next like seven or eight months, every day, she goes to the jail and sits in the cell with him as he's awaiting trial, and they read books together and discuss them, and they read everything from like James Baldwin and Frederick Douglass to Marilyn Robinson, and they talk about them um, and about the legacy of racism. They talk about privilege. Michelle really wrestles with her own privilege and what it means she's obligated to do to help those people people who have less privilege. Um, and it's this, this is a wonderful, inspiring, important, very timely book, not just about the relationship between this one teacher and this one student, but about books at like capital B books, literature, education, race. Um, it's about justice in the rural South, but it really is about the, um, sort of politicizing role of books and literature in general, um, the ways that they wake us up to what's happening in the world and to, you know, the fact that like structural racism is a thing. Um, 
it's just really remarkable. I want to buy a bajillion copies of this and just start handing it out every time someone tells me that like they just want to read a good story and books shouldn't be political. This book is the answer to that. And it's such a this is just such a good moment in our culture for this book to be coming out. It's very affirming of the place of books and reading in our lives, the power that they have, but also a very sobering reminder of the difficulties and the real disadvantages that many Americans still face. So it's Reading with Patrick, A Teacher, a Student, and a Life-Changing Friendship by Michelle Kuo. My segue is, no, I got nothing. <laughs> All right. My next book on. has words. Um, and it is Meddling Kids by Edgar Cantero. It's this really fun take on, like, Scooby-Doo, Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, Bloodhound Gang, like, those kid detective clubs. This starts, well, it doesn't start off, but it's in Oregon in 1977. There is the Blyton Summer Detective Club, which is for preteens and teens and their dog. They solve the mystery of the Sleepy Lake Monster. When they unmask the monster, of course, you know, he does the whole thing like, and I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for these meddling kids. You know, now fast forward, it's 1990. The kids have grown up. They are haunted by their last night together working a case. That case was the Sleepy Lake Monster case. Um, Andy is now a criminal. She's wanted in two states. Carrie is a promising scientist with a drinking problem. Nate is actually locked up in Arkham Asylum in Massachusetts. But he still talks to the fourth member, Peter, which is unusual because Peter has been dead for several years. Um, and it starts out with the man behind the Sleepy Lake monster is getting out of prison. He's been in jail for 13 years, and now he's out. And Andy decides that she doesn't want to run from her demons any longer. She wants to get the team back together and figure out what really happened all those years ago at Sleepy Lake on their last case. Uh, it's so much fun. Um... I'll give you a hint. It's not, it's not man-made. I'll tell you that much um, what happens. But it's, this is the second novel novel published in English by Edward Cantero. I believe he's from Barcelona. Um, his first was The Supernatural Enhancements, which is this weird and delightfully wonderful haunted house mystery. He's so, so great. Again, it's called Meddling Kids by Edgar Cantero. All right. And to bring it home, my last pick this week is a paperback shout out to one of our favorites and one of the like universally agreed upon best books of 2016. It's out in paperback today. It's The Wangs Versus the World by Jade Chang. One of the most fun reading experiences that I had last year. So if you have not read it yet, it's a perfect summer road trip novel, but it's also about big family issues. Um, the Wang family built a fortune with a cosmetics and uh, empire, basically, and the father who built the fortune has now lost everything. Uh, the kids kind of had a sense that maybe something was happening, but they had no idea how dire it was until their dad and their stepmother show up in a beat up old car to pick them up from their separate colleges. And um, they're on the West Coast, but they are going to drive all the way to upstate New York, where their older sister who has built her own successful life lives because now they don't have a house. They've got they don't really have anything. So they're going to go stay with the sister and hopefully get their get their feet back under them. Also the father is thinking about maybe going back to try to like claim a family fortune that he thinks exists and that he has some right to, but we don't actually know for most of the book if that is a thing or not. Um, there are chapters from 
all of the characters' perspectives. So you really get to know what happened that led up to this, what the father's experiences were like, but also what the kids were doing. Uh, because it's also an immigrant story, you get stuff about their experiences of racism, things about the pressures from their parents to perform a certain way. Um, the son in the family is trying really painfully to become a stand-up comedian, and you get to see some of those moments happen on the page. And it's like funny and cringeworthy in the way that if you were watching it on TV, you'd be like watching through your fingers. Um, but Jade Chang just does such a lovely job of presenting this family and the difficult circumstances that they're in, but really fleshing out what each of them is experiencing and putting it in a bigger sort of like modern American family story, losing the family fortune. What do you do? I mean, I also love it when a book has all of the members of a family like in a tight space together, like they're all in a beach house. And so there's nothing better than everybody is in a station wagon driving across the country. It's just the best. Um, so that is The Wangs Versus the World by Jade Chang, and it's out in paperback today. And now I know since there were a floppity jillion good books this week that you have some honorable mentions. Yes. Because you read a bunch of them. Oh my goodness. I think I read something like 30 books that are out today oh over gosh. the last several months. Um, so I'm going to roll through a bunch really quickly. So if you're listening to this on one and a half time, you're going to want to slow your roll. Um, but I just couldn't not mention a bunch of these. Um, there's Revenge of the Nerd by Curtis Armstrong, which is not something I ever thought I would be saying, but it's a delightful memoir by the guy who played Booger in Revenge of the Nerds. It's so good. He's adorable. Um, There's A Catalog of Birds by Laura Harrington, which is a wonderful novel about a young man when he returns from Vietnam. Uh, There's Gork the Teenage Dragon by Gabe Hudson, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a biography of a teenage dragon. If you like Walter Mower novels, it's perfect for you. Um, Refuge by Diana Nayari is about global immigration and the relationship between a father and daughter. Uh, a 20-minute silence followed by applause is a nonfiction book about the mime Marcel Marceau by Sean Wen. Um, it's so fascinating. Had no idea he was such an interesting guy. Um, my favorite book of stories out this month is called Telling the Map by Christopher Rowe. Comes out from Small Beer Press, one of my favorite indie presses. There's Sex and Rage by Eve Babbitt. It's a reissue of the 1979 novel about a young woman and her life between L.A. and New York City. There's The Forensic Records Society by Magnus Mills, one of my very favorite authors that nobody seems to read here. It's about a vinyl appreciation society. Um, There's The Art of Starving by Sam J. Miller, about a teen boy who thinks he can control the universe if he doesn't eat. And All the Muppet Arms, the second volume, I have not read it yet, but the second volume of Monstrous is out today. So, good to know. Okay, that's all. All right, those are new books out this week and a lot of honorable mentions. What are you going to read next? I'm actually going to read a book that you read a couple months ago um, called The Push. I, I have it. I've had it forever. And I was oh, like, yeah. yeah, Tommy. Tommy Caldwell? Yes. I was like, I forgot to write down his name by Tommy Caldwell, the climber and like all the things that he experienced mm-hmm. in his life. And also um, they just announced that Who Fears Death by Nettie Okorafor is going to be a TV show. So I'm going to reread that exciting. today too, I think. What about you? Very cool. Um, I think I'm going to read Truly Madly Guilty by Leanne Moriarty. It's Mm. out in paperback in a couple of weeks, and I discovered her. Well, I mean, I had heard about her because people love her, Um, but I read her for the first time last fall. I read Big Little Lies coming back from Book Riot Live, and I really, really loved it. It was so fun. So I'm looking forward to picking up another one of her books. I could use, you know, like a I love, you know, suburban drama <laughs> and a good thriller. Um, so I think that's what I'm going to read next. Awesome. 
That wraps us up for today. Thank you to our sponsors, Third Love. You can go to thirdlove.com slash books to start your free 30-day trial with one of their 24-7 bras to goodbye, bita- goodbye vitamin. That's hard to say quickly. <laughs> we'll have a link to it in the show notes. And to LeVar Burton Reads, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. If you have something to say to us, you can do that at all the books at bookriot.com or talk to us on Twitter. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Liberty is Miss Liberty. And if you've got a minute to rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts, that helps us. But more importantly, it fires up the podcast algorithm juice and helps other readers find their way to our show. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books out today, we do not have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. I will be back on Friday with all the backlists. And in the meantime, happy happy reading. reading.